Incendiary Bites. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of Incendiary Bites. It's a very special episode. It's on behalf of the BEMA AI Council, of which I am co-chair. And I've got a colleague with me on that, uh, Mr. Phil Harvey from Microsoft, and we'll be interviewing him about his book. So, Phil, why don't you give us the title of the book, tell us a little bit about yourself, and maybe why you decided to write that book. So the book's called Data, A Guide to Humans, and I'm co-author of that with a good friend of mine, Dr. Noelia Jimenez-Martinez. So, yeah, as you said, I currently work at Microsoft Research. I'm an autonomous systems architect. What that means is I'm helping people to apply simulation-based deep reinforcement learning, which is a form of AI technology, in industry. This is kind of tangentially related to the book, but the book was born of my experience being a programmer and data person for a good number of years. In that time, I was a startup technical co-founder and CTO, that kind of person, and I've also done a bit of teaching on a academic to industry data science conversion course called S2DS. So the book was kind of based on all of the learnings of all of those bits and pieces. The reason I wrote it was because there's this stick that technical people are hit with, and it's this stick of empathy. You know, if they do something that non-technical people don't like, it's kind of, or have a bit more empathy and those things. And I realized that I wanted to have a bit more empathy, you know, being a programmer and sort of listen to the people around me. But there wasn't any good material in a clear form. A lot of the books and a lot of the material I was pointed towards was kind of not really technical in nature. It's kind of a bit more, to, to coin a term, as I would have said it before, a bit more woolly, etc. So I started to research what empathy might look like for a technical person and tried to think of how that would be helpful. So I'm trying to solve the how to help technical people approach empathy on their own terms, really. It's quite a, a strange mix in one respect, but interesting. I do like the empathy approach myself, and we'll come on to data and empathy on some of the questions I've got. And what I did find was um, quite amusing is in reading your book, which I I must admit I'm not 100% through, I reckon I'm about 75%, I didn't have quite time before this, was the fact that we went to the same university just many years apart because you're much younger than us, uh, but us, me. Yeah, you you did the AI course and I did the computer science and AI course. I wasn't quite as brave as you to go straight AI. So it's quite interesting that we both were there. We both ended up programming and, you know, we both did the CTO thing. It's funny, but I've never got to write a book. And it's a good read. I must say, I would thoroughly recommend it. It's a very easy read and you can't really say that for for too many uh, books on this topic. Uh, So that's good. Well, thank you. Right at the beginning of the book, we were talking about data and you're pointing out that it's that historical data that is powering most of the algorithms, shall we say, probably the bulk of the algorithms that we see today. So I believe there are dangers of this. I think you probably think there are dangers of this. You know, what level of danger is there and are enough people concerned about just modeling on historical data does that actually give us anything new where's the innovation that can come out of ai using historical data 
It's a really good question, actually, because it's kind of an area I've moved into after the book, actually. So the book covers the importance of this analysis of data, the fact that we have this new resource that can help us know new things in new ways, which is incredibly powerful. Think of the massive increase in literacy after the printing press. That was considered dangerous as well, because, you know, the careful knowledge of books was now available to more people and... As fiction became more popular, people wrote dirty books and lots of people worried about the sort of moral degradation of people who could now read these dirty books in text and whatever it was. So I see data as on the same course there. It's changing what we know and it's incredibly powerful in that way. But what I've discovered or explored or whichever from the book through to now, you can think of two kinds of data, right? There's the historic data. And a lot of the work that's done on that data is based on what's known as an expectation of ergodicity. Things that happened in the past will be repeated in the future. So if you study enough data, you'll be able to spot patterns that you'll be able to take advantage of before they arrive again. So this is based on a kind of wish to be physics, because physics develops formulas that are tested and repeatable and all those things. And this kind of expectation of ergodicity is a a dream of economics. People want to be able to look at the economic situation of a country, make predictions, and then make more money on the top. But there's actually another form of data after that, which is synthetic data about possible futures. And as we've seen now, as the world changes, you know, with the climate emergency and globalization and responses to globalization and all those things, we get more of these events which aren't represented in history. What happens tomorrow is not necessarily predictable on the data of the past. You just get these statistical distributions about what could happen. You can generate that data through simulation and other methods about possible futures, counterfactuals, if you will, and what could happen, which is not necessarily based on historical data at all. It's based on a model of the system and these things. So the danger that you ask about there is really clearly based on a belief that this data is a fundamental form of truth rather than a place to find new knowledge and different ways of knowing that knowledge. I mean, totally, I don't know, you know, I'm not expert enough to know how many people believe it is a complete source of truth. I'm kind of looking at it from the everyday person who's uh, using tools, maybe based on data, doesn't really even think that it's based on historical data. Mm. And you're on a pathway that has been almost predicted uh, from the past how, and there might be multiple pathways onto that on the ai side real artificial intelligence does historical data allow for an artificial intelligence to have real innovation or are they being curtailed or limited by the data i think that person on the street's expectation of what is possible is really interesting i want to give an example before i sort of talk about innovation and creativity as it were in ai I was with somebody I know very well on the street and we were walking down Redchurch Street in London and there's a shop called Toast there that we walked past and there's other things we kind of talked about. And I was on the train and they said to me, do you know how to turn off the phone listening to me? Because just after we were talking about toast or whatever, I got this email advertising whatever to me that seems to be related. I've had exactly this as well. So I'm really interested in what you're going to say here. 
Yeah, and then, so it's like, oh, is it listening to me? And I said, no, give me a, give me your phone, unlock it for me. And I showed them that they still had their mapping app open in the background, yeah, which is tracking <laughs> exactly. where they were. So there's this expectation that there's something magical happening, the phone's always listening, AI's working out this stuff, whatever, as opposed to a very simple kind of geofencing around who's paying for advertising. And so you've been targeted based on the data of where you are. The fact that you were there is more connected to the fact that you're talking about it than the fact that the phone's listening to you. So there's usually Occam's razor comes in here that the simple explanation is the most likely explanation as it were, and you go, well, you allowed your phone to track your location. You've, you allowed it to do it with a mapping app when it's open. You forgot to close your mapping app. And so your permissions have been given at some point in the past to allow it to do that. The fact that you were talking to me has nothing to do with it. It's just that I represent AI to some people. And so they suddenly make a leap that says, oh, AI must have done this. Let's, let's ask Phil. So you need to look for a simpler explanation. But, and this is the, the question about sort of innovation and creativity. Right now, we're a lot safer because we do have that tie to historic data and there are simple explanations. There are a lot of dangerous things done in that name. But if we allow AI to start creating models of the world and evaluating these potential futures, those links to the kind of obvious answers get lost. So I think, yeah, there is an exciting future where AI can be creative and innovative by modeling and extrapolating from those models, because then it won't be tied to that historical data. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the maps thing. I had exactly the same, but I I said, you know, okay, what's your search history? What have you been searching for? What have you been saying on, on social media? It's the same type of thing. People completely forget that they're giving all of this data over in the first instance, and it's actually being quite simply used. Yeah, I think historical data is interesting. That's where we are now. I'm quite interested to see an AI really, well, seem to think, shall we say. I know we're definitely not anywhere near there yet. And I think I did my course in 93. When did you do yours, Phil? Turn of the millennium, let's just say that. There you go. Yeah, turn of the millennium. There you go. So we've been doing doing this a while, and these things have come around, and we're on data and the size of that data was even talked about back in 93, you know, so mm. we're 30 years on, got a way to go yet. What I really liked about the book from my user experience side was the empathy part. And I was, when I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, okay, this is quite interesting with the data and the historical data and the fact that people click on, you know, the Facebook, happy, sad, sorry, you know, LinkedIn, it's just the same. And this data can be perceived by the recipient as some form of empathy. That's historical data. And if we map historical data then as though it were empathy, you know, there's, it just it feels completely fake or micro empathy at best. So I'm interested. I know you go into a lot more depth um, than what I've just uh, said, but I'm kind of that spin into data of empathy and how it's collected currently. What's your view on that? I really like this as an example. I especially like the fact that you refuse to call Facebook meta. I think that's a, a, <laughs> a lovely, a lovely little slight in that way as well. So we've got to separate here empathy within the mind of the person and the action they take. And I think your example there is where people get mixed up. 
there's a wonderful book by somebody called Paul Bloom called Against Empathy. And he talks very specifically about something known as emotional empathy, which is under biological empathy. And this is kind of the meat and potatoes of what it is to be an animal as a human. There are these uh, hypothesized and people are testing these things called mirror neurons in humans and other animals, which is that real kind of you're sad, I'm sad kind of empathy, you know, feeling with somebody else, if you will. Now, what Paul Bloom talks about, which I really like, is this thing called the spotlight effect, which is the manipulation of that biological empathy to make you focus on things. And we see that played out on social media. I think those buttons that you talk about are a good example, what there are various studies with, you know, people click the anger button more, and so algorithms show them content that makes them more angry, et cetera, et cetera, political situations play out or whatever. So in that scenario, you need to separate the fact that there is content triggering a biological emotional response in a mind based on some kind of meatware, as it were, and then the action people take. So the clicking of the button that says, I like this, I'm sad by this, or whatever it is, is not empathy. It is an action based on the manipulation of biological empathy. So to take that data and say, what we'll do is we'll use that as a tagging system for data, and we will come up with a digital, emotional, or empathetic response that's based on that data is a false premise, because you're not saying we have to understand the biological meatware modeling of the empathy system that led to that action. What you're saying is that action is empathy, which is just philosophically weak. And this is a problem, is kind of part of why wants to write the book. Because if you're saying, okay, if you're going to say empathy and you're not going to give people enough information about what that means and breaking that down in a technical way, you're going to get through to these problems where people are going to say, oh, I can slap the word empathy on it and I can do this kind of tag data processing and nobody's going to question it. And that leads to all kinds of weird manipulations and ethical issues and all of those kind of things. I think you, what you're saying is right. I just worry how many people know what you know and what I know. And I worry even more, let's let's call it meta if we must, you know, the Zuckerberg Trust, whatever. But, you know, do they know? I'm not sure, you know. I kind of think, oh, I always think of like the curve of intelligence and and a Google, Microsoft, to all these big companies, you've got the great people like yourself. And then, you know, it's going to taper away at the corners. And I don't think a lot of people think deeply enough. I'm going to stop you because you're falsely equating knowledge of a particular topic with intelligence. And I think this is this is a, a really great example. And thank you for raising this. I know you as the questioner, you have this great opportunity to kind of pose questions in a particular way like this. So, you know, being super smart doesn't mean you have the breadth of information about every topic. So what you have is really smart people who are encouraged by the system they're in, whether that's the company, the educational system, or these things, and to specialise in a topic. I've got other opinions about that, which is probably for another talk about education and all that pathways and these kind of things. But what it means is you have this system where... People are being paid to make an organization money. They're super smart 
and they're doing a particular job and they're given the goal of making more money and they find a way to do that. So they process this data, they do that and they go, do you know what? We can make more advertising revenue if we call it empathy and we do these things. The jump there is there are also super smart people with, you know, humanities backgrounds, uh, empathy backgrounds, sociology backgrounds, all of those things. And because of the specialism, those kind of intelligences don't get to mix. So nobody comes and points in the right direction, as it were. I think that, you know, what we're saying there is about these smart people, they're using it to make money. I worry about how much they're convincing themselves there is some form of empathy there and what level it is to what they're doing and and what benefit they're bringing. So I think you do a nice little diagram in your book, Types of Empathy, where you've got biological on one side, which is animals or in the animal kingdom, if you want plants and humans. And on the other side is artificial empathy. And what I'm kind of thinking is it's quite interesting. I wonder if the... The use of the these bits of data is classed almost as some form of biological empathy. It was a human's done it, but really the human's not given any more empathy than a dog, cat, or monkey would at best. In an actual fact, what it is is a real. It should actually be on the artificial side. It's actually artificial empathy, and we've got some sort of strange feedback loop of no empathy or very little empathy going around being used to feed data to people that is in some way thought of as empathetic to what their actions were. You're pointing towards something that I think is called effective computing, where people are trying to study this kind of artificial empathy. I mean, uh, you know, effective computing just adds another word to the sort of word soup of different bits of artificial intelligence. But when you look over at that side, you've got the kind of digital stuff, your chatbots that say nicer things to people automatically. You've got the kind of data bits and pieces and processing tagged data into these things, which we covered earlier. Then on the other side, you've got what I call systematic empathy in there, where you look at the artificial, and we'll call this non-biological artificial systems, the systems of the world that we live in. And you can study those to see how much their structure, whether it's digital or physical or those things, has any level of empathy built into it. And being very specific, I'm going to talk about cognitive empathy, which is about understanding somebody's feelings and needs rather than sharing them. So I'm not talking about whether I felt sad when I thought about somebody and and that drove my action. That's what Paul Bloom's talking about. I'm talking about, did I take a moment to understand the feelings and needs of others when creating this system? So let's just, so I'll finish with a really sort of out there example. But London, especially the old bits of London, have this weird kind of human empathy built into their crazy street design and all that kind of stuff. New York is a grid-based city. There's really no sort of empathy in there. It's this kind of brutalist, idealised grid system of a city. Then you've got something like Milton Keynes, which is meant to be designed to separate humans and traffic and all these kind of things. And so there's a kind of cognitive empathy built into there. So in A Tale of Three Cities, you've got your sort of brutalist system of New York. You've got your 
biological system of London that grew up around the needs of people just in a sort of unconscious way. And you've got something like Milton Keynes, which was designed in a very specific way, taking into account the human factors. And you can use that analogy when looking at all kinds of systems all the way through to the digital. <laughs> That's cool. I, I, I like your little analogy uh, at the end there. I think we've covered some good ground. If there was one final comment you'd like to make a thought to leave or something like that what would that be my final thought on empathy is really related to what people can do there is a well-trodden proven interdependence between empathy and diversity diversity requires you to understand more kinds of people empathy enables you to understand more different kinds of people. If you have a problem that you think is caused by a lack of empathy, you need to look at the diversity of the group that you consider that has the problem. Diversity of thought, physical characteristics, background, education, all of those kind of things, because that is a path. Changing the diversity and the interaction of people and the interdisciplinary nature of teams will have more impact on the empathy people have and the way they approach problems than trying to hit them with any particular stick and telling them to you know go and do this online course or whatever that's cool thanks for that what was quite amusing um during that um is i think your mic started giving out and you started sounding more and more like uh, some sort of artificial intelligence by the end <laughs> so, oh wow <laughs> i thought so I, maybe this isn't phil maybe this is just the artificial phil thank you for testing artificial phil bots 2.0 <laughs> how have you found the experience please click one of the four buttons below <laughs> so good well, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, let's end it there. Have a great day. I look forward to the remaining oh, 20% or, or so of the book. But I, I mean, to give you some idea, I read that in the last two days because I knew we were doing this podcast. Uh, so it, I, I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't a good read. So I recommend it. A Data, A Guide to Humans by Phil Harvey. And would you like to say your colleague's name so I don't butcher it? Dr. Noelia Jimenez-Martinez. Yeah, in the computer voice. Excellent. All right, then. Thank you so much, Phil. All right, mate. Take care.